These days, so many podcast hosts just riff through unprepared segments until they get to the next ad break for pills they know nothing about, cheap razors, and whatever else they can get a buck from. But the Higher Side Chats does it differently. We succeed or fail on the quality of the content and your desire to hear more of it. So you're about to hear another free first hour episode that's here to prove the two hour shows are worth subscribing for. Five shows a month for just $8. Members get a mobile friendly website, a decade of archives, a dedicated RSS feed for the best podcast apps, and a lot deeper discussion than a single hour can allow for. Sponsor free with more for thee. Get a free seven-day trial of THC Plus at thehiresidechats.com. Enjoy! In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Doing the thing from sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and we have unpacked many pockets of suppressed people, knowledge, and empowering magic on this long road to the promised land. But a lesser explored subject that touches on all three of these things is the suppression of eros, female sexuality, and the divine feminine. Clearly the Catholic Church and Western society as a whole has done its damnedest to keep women down a peg or two. As for years, they were only allowed in supporting roles from nuns to secretaries, nurses, and housewives. And it's even been said that the Holy Trinity itself of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost is curiously missing a crucial element to fill out that famous family. History is in no short supply of eras and instances of telling women to cover up either, as if intimidated by the allure of their sexuality, and for years, most academic studies of sexuality were for men by men. Well, if the divine feminine promotes love, passion, and compassion, it's not hard to see how that might conflict with a culture conditioned to value brute strength, domination, and a dog-eat-dog competitive mentality, hell-bent on war after war and a cold capitalist approach to everything. And when it comes to sex itself, or sex as a vehicle for enlightenment, we've also been left completely in the dark, taught that it's wrong and dirty, and we best just stay away. Yet it is why we're all here. Much like psychedelics, there are approaches to sexuality and techniques that can blow the doors of perception wide open and give one the keys to the mental prison that has been crafted for us. And of course, that's something the authorities have spent large amounts of energy trying to keep at bay. Well, today we're talking to Dr. Joanna Kuyava, the author of a very interesting new book entitled The Other Goddess, Mary Magdalene and the Goddesses of Eros and Secret Knowledge. She's been digging deep into this stuff for many years as she received her BA and MA from the Pontifical Institute for Medieval Studies at the University of Toronto, Canada, and her PhD from Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. She's been an active academic for over two decades, using her scholarly training to investigate topics other academics often pass over. An attitude we can certainly appreciate around here, so let's do it. The other goddess author, sacred feminine scholar, and dedicated spiritual detective, Dr. Joanna Kuyava, welcome to the higher side. 
Hi, Greg. That was a wonderful introduction. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. <laughs> Thank you. I try to get them uh, worked up because, you know, there's a lot of things trying to get people's attention these days. But I am certainly looking forward to this. Big thanks to Miguel Connor for putting us in touch. You had mentioned to me that you heard the interview I did with Alan Greenfield about sex magic and the central secret of secret societies. Secret societies, another hierarchy that women aren't allowed into. Uh And you made some good points about how there is a light side to sex magic and sex-driven enlightenment, I guess we could say. Yes. And a reason sexuality is so suppressed. It doesn't have to be all dark and salacious as it's usually presented. And that sex magic stuff might be provocative for shows like this, but it's certainly only half the story. And it's a big part of what has motivated this area of study for you and the book, right? Correct. And, you know, it also, that's why this book, although it is research-based, especially the first part of The Via the Goddess, is very personal because my experience of sexuality was different and I started to look at esoteric traditions that explore sexuality as a means of enlightenment, such as, for example, esoteric tantra. So I thought there is something into this that is really uncovered. And when I started to look into early Christianity and also, you know, Sumerian traditions and Egyptian traditions and Hindu tradition, and I'm talking about, when I talk about tantra, I talk about the classic tantra of Kashmir Shaivism, which is very different than, for example, Chinese tantra, which is Taoist, which has completely different goals which do not include enlightenment, they are mostly focused on longevity, or Western Tantra, which is usually called Neo-Tantra, which basically means that in some ways they want to focus on sacred sexuality, but it's really about improving your sexual life with your partner, and this is not what classic Tantra is about. And as I was studying this, I started to notice a connection with Mary Magdalene and goddesses of Sumer. So... Let me know where you would like me to start this journey (laughs) for your show. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you mentioned what you mentioned there, because when people hear Tantra, they sometimes think Kama Sutra. And Mm. obviously, those are two totally different things that don't even have the same approach. It isn't about uh, heightening pleasure with a partner. It is about enlightenment. And that is a significant difference, right? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, and that's fine. That's why we have Kama Sutra and Kama Sutra is a wonderful piece of work. And I'm all for people having some fun, you know, and and deepening (laughs) the intimacy and sexual pleasure. But the classic Tantra goals are completely different. It is basically using sexuality, especially female sexuality, when during an intimate act with a man to reach a heightened state of consciousness. For example, Let me start, you know, right from the beginning. So when I was living in Melbourne for about a year and a half, I was studying an esoteric work from Kashmir Shaivism, Tantra Loka, which was written by a 10th century Indian philosopher known as Abhinavagupta. Abhinavagupta was basically like an Einstein of his own times because he wrote about everything. He's this kind of geniuses that happens once, you know, every few centuries. And Chapter 29 of Tantra Loka, which is the light of, on tantras, it's about the use of sexual magic or sexuality. You know, he wouldn't use the word magic, but sexual rituals for the purpose of enlightenment. 
However, he was not the first one, so to speak. He was the first one who wrote it down because I would like to also honor the tradition, long tradition, ancient tradition of women, yoginis and dakinis, who actually introduced this tradition to our system belief. For example, there was almost a mythological figure, Arda Triambaka, who was a daughter of a great sage, Triambaka, and she actually came up with this ritual of using female sexuality for the purpose of enlightenment. And then there was a long line of Dakinis and Yoginis who, you know, passed on this tradition orally because they didn't write. And, you know, they just passed from one woman, from one Yogini to another. And then in Tibetan Buddhist tradition, they were called Dakinis. They are also known for possessing other powers because when you commit yourself fully to a spiritual practice, you start to develop, but you should not focus on it. There's a warning here. But you start to develop certain qualities, which in this tradition are called siddhis, which in Western traditions would be called magic, right? So, Mm -hmm. for example, the Dakin is well, well known for moving between dimensions, you know, being able to be in two places at the same time and so on. So, but it was just a byproduct of this. The goal of this tradition was to basically reach enlightenment, to be one with the divine mind through sexual bliss by use of female sexuality. And I love this part, you know, of Tantra Loka, which says that once this happens, you will be walking like gods and goddesses on earth because you have an experience of a divine mind. You cleanse the doors of perception. You see, you know, the beauty of everything that is around you. And you will see, you know, that we are just spiritual beings in this dimension, but also the different dimensions open up for you. And I know this for a fact because I myself had this kind of experience when I was studying it, as I mentioned earlier, for a year and a half with a translator of his work, who coincidentally is a Catholic priest who is a Sanskrit scholar, and he did a PhD on this. And I studied it with a Tibetan monk who just escaped from Tibet. Now he has a successful, you know, meditation center and so on near Melbourne, and another Swami. However, this was, we did not practice it. We just studied this work, which was just translated by the scholar, you know, that I mentioned before. And I'm not sure if you want me to talk about, but (laughs) when I was studying it, I had a spontaneous experience of which these works are talking. Having said so, I was already also initiated to the tradition. So I went through the process of initiation because I was already a committed seeker. Yes, I definitely want to talk to you about that personal experience and to get into it pretty early in this because it's probably the most provocative thing in the whole book. Mm. But as for your personal history... I guess I wanted to go back even further than the study of the Tantra Loka and that provocative chapter 29, because I've heard you say you were born in Poland, and I have a Polish side of my family. I called my grandparents Busha and Jaja, but I've heard you say that you were born into a society that was both communist and orthodox Catholic, so you got an early crash course in brainwashing and propaganda, and I like that, but Elaborate on that background a bit and some of the realizations you had about the church and authority before even your academic career began. Thank you so much, Greg, for this question. So, yes, because also people may wonder about my accent. So, yes, I was born in Poland and it was a very strange place at that time. I'm sure it is very different now because it was intensely communist and intensely Catholic. And my family was intensely Catholic as well. And for a long time, I was a devout Catholic. 
And as a little girl, I used to go to these beautiful churches in Poland, Baroque churches with beautiful frescoes. And I always saw, you know, the paintings of Mary, Virgin Mary, the Mother Mary or Virgin Mary, which is actually the dominant deity in Poland. People usually in Poland pray to Virgin Mary. So I had this already exposure to the divine feminine. But as I started to grow up and started to feel, you know, the sweetness of Eros, I started to wonder the whole virginity thing started to, I started to question it. It stopped making sense to me. And as I was going to these churches, I noticed that somewhere, you know, to the, usually in the naves, somewhere on the side, there was this other very prominent woman, but she was kind of pushed to the side. And it was Mary Magdalene. And I could see already then, although I believed the whole Catholic story about then, not anymore, about Mary Magdalene, you know, that she was a prostitute, which is now we know historically is not true. But I noticed that she was probably the closest person to the teacher or Jesus, but somehow she was vilified, always portrayed in this kind of demeaning position, you know, almost in the position of rejection. She was the sinner. But somehow, even then, although I did not know the full story then, I thought she was a very interesting person. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. so, and I thought, and of course, it was obvious that the rejection in the church and in human mind of Mary Magdalene, despite of her prominence, had to do something with her sexuality and her connection with Jesus. Mm. Well, that is a hell of a hunch that really sends you down a (laughs) rabbit hole. But yeah, I grew up Catholic as well. And later you look back on it and it is so weird. You're on your knees. You're saying, I'm not worthy, Father. I'm a sinner and kissing the priest's hand. It's it's really fucked up stuff to be making Mm. kids do or for really Mm. anyone to go through. You, You look up to your parents who you know, teach you the ways to be in the world and your parents are Catholic. So you're going to the church and you're like, I guess this is normal. I don't know. Mm. But yeah, I think a lot of kids, they, they start to see through it, but you hit them Sunday after Sunday after Sunday for years. And it just, it normalizes what's really strange ritual behavior that puts you on a lower platform. It makes you feel dirty already. Mm. You know, you are saying that you're a sinner right out of the gate, you know, before you can even speak or walk. That's right. It really screws with you mentally, I think. That's where the Catholic guilt idea comes from. I think so. So, you know, I had the same moment that you spoke about, that one day I was, it was already in Toronto. I was already in my 20s and I was you know, on my knees in the church and I say, Father, I'm not worthy. And then it just hit me. Why am I not worthy? Why am I behaving like a slave? Why am I on <laughs> my knees? Even, you know, early Christian paintings, actually not paintings, but carvings show People praying, standing up, you know, with their hands spread open to the divine energy, opening up to the flow of energy of this world, you know, to the joy of connecting with the divine. And here I am, like begging for forgiveness. I have not done anything yet. And I will tell you, it's really funny. I was living in a committed relationship with a man in Toronto for many years. And it, by all means, it was a marriage. We just didn't have a church wedding, but I was that Catholic at the time. And, you know, when I got my degree, everybody went to church because it was Pontifical Institute, right? And I was the only one who didn't go for the communion, what they call the Holy Communion, because I thought I was a sinner, because I was not married in a church. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
You know, like this kind of brainwashing. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Like, I'm just not worthy because I didn't do something they said I should be doing. Yes. And I think that's good context. I think a lot of people who did grow up similarly will resonate with that. And let's get into that crazy personal experience. So the first part of your book is largely about that. And I really wanted to make sure we got into it early because when we're talking about biblical texts and the history of religion and goddesses, it can be easy for non-religious people or ex-religious people to feel as if, well, why should I care about this stuff? They took up enough of my time and did enough damage. But when the listeners hear about this experience you had, it'll be pretty self-evident why it's important because something was hidden from us, it seems. Yes, absolutely. So when I was studying, so when I was studying uh, chapter 29, as I said, for a year and a half, we were meeting, it was a study group, we were meeting once a week. Spontaneously, I had this experience. So I describe it in quite detail in the book. And it's quite interesting in a sense that yeah, I actually spontaneously also not intentionally fulfilled all the criteria because Tantra Loka is a very provocative work, especially chapter 29. So as we were saying before, it is not about improving your sexual life. It is about reaching enlightenment. And it is also about, you know, sexual ritual, which should happen ideally with someone to whom you're not emotionally attached. And I know that people are cringing now, <laughs> right? <laughs> because it sounds like such a decadent thing. but there are reasons behind it. You shouldn't be emotionally attached to this person in the sense that if you are emotionally attached, if you want to create a long-term relationship with this person, then there's lots of baggage attached to this. You want to please each other. You, you have some agendas towards each other, which are conscious or unconscious. And the purpose of the whole ritual is about you focusing entirely on the purpose of reaching expanded consciousness, expanded sense of consciousness. So I'm not saying here that you cannot be in a committed relationship and do this, but then you have to be really spiritually evolved to be able to focus on this and forget your past and not worry about the future and being open to whatever happens after that. So for most couples, it is very difficult. Right? I think you probably agree, right? Because mm -hmm. there's lots of bonding us together and, and that's normal and appropriately healthy and so on. So at that time, and I'm just completely <laughs> exposing myself here. So at that time, very unusually, I had a very casual sexual relationship simply because I was getting over somebody with whom I had a long-term and very passionate and important relationship in my life. So in a sense, I fulfilled the criteria, which were basically you're a seeker, you initiated, you study the scripture, the tantric scripture, and you are not connected to your partner in a great emotional way because we just liked each other, right? That was just an attraction. And this is what happened, basically. I'm not going to explain the graphic details, but during the lovemaking, I started to feel Kundalini energy waking up in me. And I'm saying it with a little bit of caution because some people say like, oh, I'm so tired over this new age yoga. <laughs> <laughs> kundalini stuff. But what is kundalini really? It is called in Tantra Loka, it is basically your life energy. This is the, the divine spark within you. But unlike in Gnosticism, that sometimes the divine spark is understood as knowledge only, this is a living knowledge, something that is wiser and bigger than you, but lives within you. 
So it would be like the divine spark, but it's also very vital. It's not just intellectual, if I make myself clear. Sure. And according to classical Tantra, everybody has it. It is basically represented as a serpent at the bottom of your spine. And through sexual rituals, or actually through even, you know, lustful sex, you know, it could even happen like that, this energy can be awakened at the bottom of your spine. And I started to feel this energy moving. And it's a really strange feeling because people ask me, so was it like you or was it like some other entity within you? And it really feels like both because it was me, but it was almost like an evolved me, if you can imagine this. It was, it was me, but it was me that was so much wiser and so much more powerful. So it was more, almost like me in my full potential, but not the me that I am at the moment, <laughs> right? In my, right. limited me. It was unlimited me. And it started to move upwards towards my spine, exploded in my heart. And actually, when I physically, you know, I was lit up, you know, like you could see it physically. Even I could see like there was suddenly light in the room. A physical glow, you're saying? A physical glow. And we're not talking about kind wow. of sexy glow. You know, we're talking about like energy <laughs> You know, it is just like a lamp, yeah. right? Physical glow. And this is, you know, the man was just like, fortunately, he had some spiritual understanding and he realized what is going on. And what happened, it is, as it is described actually in the scriptures, that a woman is the carrier of this energy and this energy through sexual acts spells on a man. So a woman needs a man to wake up this energy in her and then she spills it over to a man so they both get the experience of divine consciousness. So it's kind of very masculine, feminine kind of thing going on here. And then he started, you know, we went into like kind of meditative, and he was blown away, of course, at first, meditative state, you know. However, you know, the energy started to proceed and then move to it towards my forehead. And then it stopped there. It stopped there and exploded again, you know. And I again kind of lit up, physically lit up. And we went into this meditative state, which lasted for a very long time. But it's not only that it is a meditative state. I started to perceive reality obviously not now, but then when this happened, you know, as energy. So I, I just saw basically particles of energy around me, but not, I realized I had experience of the world not being material, so to speak, because we usually speak about spirit and matter, right? Which is a very kind of materialistic polarity. But this was more like, mm, it was experience of energy, mm -hmm. you know, what quantum physicists are talking about. Mm -hmm. So I just saw particles of energy around myself. And what was interesting about it, that this, people say, how, how do you know that it wasn't just orgasm? Right. You know, <laughs> and I say, I know because this energy was very conscious. It was wise. It was powerful. You know, it was bigger than me. It was moving through me, spilling upon the man. And also by the time it got to my forehead, it kind of paused for a moment, almost like thinking, what's next? You know, am I going to leave it here and let them have a good time? Or am I going to give them like a experience of cosmic consciousness? And obviously decided, you know, to give us this spiritual experience, although it goes beyond, I think, distinction between spiritual and material. And this bliss lasted for a very long time. 
and you know I remember days later standing at the bus stop you know and being completely actually almost dysfunctional because I just see energy around myself wow you know and just outlines of people and objects so it is a little bit like they say in the gospel of Thomas or even Blake said you know cleansing your doors of perceptions and this is what happened and this is what in chapter 29 is promised you'll be walking like gods and goddesses on the earth because you will enter what they called goddess consciousness mm. right so you you beyond the normal distinctions of matter and spirit right right wow that is such a wild experience i've heard you call it erotic rapture which is a really great term that i like and you say this was spontaneous and not intentional you're with a partner that is you know casual based on lust that's a prerequisite but was there something in the experience that you think triggered it was there something different about the lovemaking session on that day no there was nothing different about it except that the only thing that was different it is that i actually didn't expect it because i was just coming back through the study of a sacred text tantric text and a friend one of the male friends with whom i studied it dropped me off at my place and the man that i was dating then was waiting for me and you know and i didn't even expect it huh. so there was nothing unusual about the love making except that i was imbued with the teachings if i can say because we were just after the study session and i was such a committed student of this you know i really wanted to understand everything i really wanted to understand what is going on in tantra loka and it's an extremely difficult text to read it is very encoded and it is encoded for several reasons because it was being practiced by abhinava gupta and by other brahmins which was completely forbidden because they have to have a, like an excellent morally proper life you know no sex or just sex with our wives and you know no wine and no meat and so on you know and the ritual actually if you do the ritual as it is described which is you know we didn't do this it is you're supposed to drink wine with menstrual blood and so on you do all of these forbidden things for religious purposes so it's an act of like a rebellion against all the rules so to speak to go beyond all the rules and to go straight to the divine mind mm -hmm. so apart from the fact that i was still you know every sacred text has an energy so if you really connect with the text if you are really devotional in this text in devotional in the sense that you're not praying to this but you you're giving your energy to this you you study this with great passion you know and devotion and by devotion i mean you really want to understand what is conveyed there then the text gives you this energy as well you know it's a reciprocity between you and the sacred text and anybody who studies some people have it with rumi's poems you know there's certain energy that they give you this kind of text so this is the only thing i can think about that i was just coming back from the study session and this is when it happened but nothing physical and that's why when i was trying to describe this experience to one I wanted to write an article, you know, to a mail magazine. They said, oh, this is a great stuff, but can you tell us what you did physically? <laughs> and I said, I can't because it was just nothing, you know, it was normal, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. it was a normal intercourse. Well, 
It is all interesting because you mentioned doing some things that are considered taboo, you know, the drinking of, of wine and menstrual blood and, and this sort of stuff. Well, when I talk to people who are discussing sex magic in a darker way, like in a provocative secret society way, it does include these sorts of protocols. And that's where people start to think, oh, this is blasphemous and dark and evil because you're going with all these taboos, but it's like blasphemous to who? The Catholic Church? I mean, are they the authority on on morality? I mean, I think they've got some skeletons in the closet. And if we're going to consider them to be gatekeepers of knowledge more than anything, it starts, and, and enlightenment too, it starts to be like, well, let's reverse engineer it all. And how did these certain protocols become bad and evil? It, it's like, because it seems kind of mundane. I mean, you might say it's a little gross that you don't want to do it, but it's not evil. I mean, there's definitely a distinction between gross and and evil, but it's just like, where do these ideas come from when they institute and when the Catholic church says, don't do any of this stuff. And this stuff leads to spiritual experience, leads to consciousness expansion and enlightenment. It's like, well, you know, why did they say not to do these things? It's also kind of like psychedelics. They don't want you to take psychedelics because it opens the doors of perception and it's like there's many paths that lead to enlightenment and they try to gatekeep all of them. I just wasn't aware of this sexual one. And it started to make me think, I wonder if the institution and sacrament of marriage itself is a way to keep people from this experience. I'm happy in my marriage, but you said that one of the protocols is, you know, you shouldn't do this with a person that you have a, a deep love with. And so that's another thing. If you say, hey, you got to get married when you turn 18 and then you ever get divorced, you're going straight to hell. So you better not. It's like, well, there's not a lot of time to have such an experience, an erotic rapture under those conditions. Yeah, that's a very deep and interesting, you know, questions that you gave me and very appropriate. So there is a context to all of this. And yes, you are right with everything you said. However, you can do it with your partner under the conditions that your focus is on expansion of consciousness mm -hmm. and on detachment, which may be very difficult with a, in a relationship of a long-term relationship, right? That's why it is easier to achieve this kind of state of consciousness with somebody with whom you don't have this kind of attachment. However, when we talk about, you know, the menstrual, so there are a few aspects to what you just said. However, when we are talking about drinking wine with menstrual blood, which we didn't do it, right? Right. So it's when you do it in a ritualistic way, when which we didn't, for us, it was just spontaneous. So the reason why they did it, it wasn't just to be gross, because in Hinduism and in every religion, really, you know, not only in Catholicism, not only in Hinduism, women are not, and women, female energy, and especially female sexuality is very tightly controlled. And this is what we have to ask ourselves, why? And I think the answer is that this is such a, power. This is energy. This is a huge energy. And they just decided to use this energy. It's like a nuclear weapon. You can use it for good, you know, nuclear power or for bad. Mm -hmm. Right? So they just decided to use something that is so powerful, like female sexuality, when it is fully awakened. This can take us like a, you know, fast rocket to God. Having said so, you know, this menstrual blood, it was a ritual to, I honor this feminine energy. Mm -hmm. I am not rejecting it anymore. 
what is feminine, even in church fathers, I read, you know, it is, woman is just a piece of meat and blood and completely vile. They actually wrote about it, you know, in early Christian writings and throughout Middle Ages and until recently. So what Tantra does actually, it reverses everything upside down. So what is being normally considered as lower, they make it high. Right. So they said, no, I own a feminine energy. I can even drink wine, you know, of menstrual blood to honor, you know, what feminine energy has. That's why part of Tantra Loka is about drinking sexual fluids. It is about, you know, oral sex, very deep oral sex on the feminine, because they say that feminine sexual organs represent the motion of the universe, which is contracts and expands. So there's the whole philosophy behind it. And it is also an act of rebellion against this prohibition. You know, mm. that it's only about marriage, that, you know, Eros is bad, that the feminine is bad. So it is tantricas. And there was a very, also a radical group of tantricas called Kapalikas who took it, you know, to the, you know, really weird level, you know, but it is basically an act of devotion of using female energy to become one with God. So it's not just so it is gross. It is like, I honor what is normally considered gross. I honor what is normally rejected. Mm -hmm. Does it make sense? It does. And also, it is true, and I'm, I didn't look there because other people do it very well, you know, and I wanted to focus on the positive side of this because it was used as a form of enlightenment. But yes, it is, I'm certain that it used in some dark societies because they know that it is a great power. So they use it to that dark ends. So my question is, why not use it for good ends? Right. Right? Especially that it was. It was. It was actually invented for that purpose. And then, like with everything, you know, the powers at hand, they take something good, you know, and hijack it. Right. Because they want money, they want power. God knows what this, you know monsters want <laughs> but but it was the purpose of this was not dark the purpose was you know so you walk like gods and goddesses on earth you know in cosmic consciousness not so you make money and you know enslave other people <laughs> right right well you know catholicism has often been described as like a corporate religion obviously it is like a business more than anything and if you can get direct spiritual experience, then what do you need them for? So mm. any avenue to get there, you had to be removed. And then, you know, well, we are the liaison to God, you know, just give us a couple of bucks and we'll tell you you're forgiven and all will be well. And I like this phrase in your book where you say, from Kali to Aphrodite, from Shakti to Anana, we descend into the underworlds of creative chaos and back into the wombs of forgotten stargates. And that's just very provocative phrasing. I assume you're referencing to the very experience you described earlier, but wombs of forgotten stargates. That's awesome. You know, so often these magical techniques, we're talking about remote viewing, astral travel, telepathy. These are like mental effects that fall into the umbrella of magic. And so, yeah, I guess it's just there are sexual methods of getting there as well. And 
maybe the womb itself is a stargate we're learning. I just think that's really interesting. Yes, I think so. And you're correct when you say that this is just one of many methods and Abhinava Gupta says the same, right? So Tantra Loka is a big work and chapter 29 is just one of many chapters. But the reason why people, you know, we started to focus on verse one, it is because sexuality is such a rejected thing, right? And he Mm -hmm. says, no, even sexuality can be the stargate. And the reason why I started to look at the stargates, because I then started to look at the lineage of uh, goddesses in the West, that, you know, erotic goddesses, it started with Mary Magdalene for me, and I made the connection, and I'm not the first one in this sense, I admit this, to connection to other ancient goddesses, such as, you know, the Anunnaki goddess Nimna, the mm, Inanna, the Assyrian Inanna, the Egyptian Isis in Mary Magdalene, and they carry the same symbolism, which is, you know, they carry all higher magic and also erotic symbolism there, and they're always present about, you know, in the process of resurrection. Either they resurrect someone else, their partner, or even themselves. So that was definitely a theme, and yet consistently with goddesses, women, or priestesses, because somebody, you know, I had a conversation recently about Mary Magdalene, why do you call her goddess and so on, and we can get into this if you want to. But basically, yes. they were the stargates. They were the, there was some kind of necessary element there, which is a feminine element for people to go through the stargate or for, open, you know, opening of dimensions, right? And these women who were part of this ritual, part of this program, so to speak, of this training were called prostitutes, they were called harlots, and they were demeaned. So this in itself is quite interesting that women who carried this secret knowledge that had to do something with eros, resurrection, and passing between dimensions were so vilified by mainstream religions. This in, say, this in itself is an interesting concept to explore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, there's probably a lot of ego and jealousy involved there when it comes to men studying this thing. If there is some feminine gift, as you refer to it in some areas, that only a female can give an enlightening experience, well, you know, they're going to be mad about that. Certain people are going to be upset about that, especially people in positions of authority, because they can't access it and they can't really gatekeep it except to suppress it and make it seem dirty, and slander the people who do have that, which brings us to Mary Magdalene. Uh, Most people, obviously, as you say, know her as a whore or a prostitute, but you talk about a hijack that happened, and that was actually much later in the original context for her. It it really wasn't like that. And you could go a bit further and talk about the Gnostic texts because they say something totally different about her. And there's actually a gospel of Mary, surprisingly, right? That's right. So it is quite interesting because my first encounter with a different Mary Magdalene was in Jerusalem in the Russian Orthodox Church on the Mount of Olives when I noticed, you know, this now very famous painting when she's standing there with her hand extended and uh, with an egg in her hand. And there is a medieval legend about it that I'm not going to cover because I think it's very naive. But it reminded me, you know, of other goddesses that I mentioned before, especially with Nimna, Inanna, Ishtar, 
eyes that are portrayed in a similar way. And I thought they are standing with our hands extended with a gift to humanity. And what is this gift, right? And this is how the search started. But originally, when we go back to Christianity, Mary Magdalene was not considered to be a prostitute. In fact, Mary Magdalene was not considered to be a prostitute until exactly 591 in the 6th century, when Pope Gregory I made a great, I would say great, maybe that's why he's called also the great, made a scriptural mistake and conflated Mary Magdalene with the woman Sina mentioned in the gospel, in the canonical gospels. First of all, so it was homily 33, 591. And there is no evidence in the gospel about it. First of all, the woman Sina was not called Mary was not called Mary Magdalene, she's unnamed. And even if she and Mary Magdalene were the same woman, although there is no evidence for this, the word prostitute, which is pouring in Greek, was never used in the Bible, not even once. The word used towards this woman, Sine, is actually harmatolos, which means not the Sine, but somebody who broke a Jewish law. And it could be anything, maybe she didn't pay her taxes. So she's not even an mm. adulteress. She's not a prostitute. And she is not called Mary Magdalene. So the whole thing is very flimsy. And even the Catholic Church in 1969 admitted that there is no scriptural evidence for Mary Magdalene to be a prostitute or to be this woman. Mm -hmm. So that in itself is interesting. And then I started to look into Gnostic Gospels. So, for example, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene was discovered in the 19th century in Egypt. And there's an interesting story behind it. Yes. However, in this gospel, she is portrayed as the most entrusted disciple of Jesus with whom he shared his esoteric teachings. And in fact, his other disciples, especially Peter, and this is very consistent in Gnostic writings, that Peter is very jealous of Mary Magdalene, you know. So because of, he asks, how did teacher tell you all of these things? How come we don't know about it? Because Gnostics believe that Jesus gave three levels of teachings, the simple teachings that we have in the Bible, which were for, you know, people around the Lake of Galilee, where he taught, and the second level to his disciples, and the third level he gave to Mary Magdalene, and some scholars also believe to John, who were his most advanced teaching mm, uh, disciples, I'm sorry. Disciples, yeah. And in other works, such as the Gospel of Philip, she is called Jesus is Koinoinos, which means his special partner. And the same, she is also his favorite disciple in Pistis Sophia, which is another Gnostic work, which is a kind of a question and answer session between Jesus and his disciples, where disciples ask 42 questions. And out of his 42 questions, 39 are asked by Mary Magdalene, and they are very esoteric questions. And Peter again gets really upset and he says, you know, why is she even here? You know, she's a woman. And Jesus tells him to shut up. And he says, Peter become because, you know, she's imbued with the spirit. So, <laughs> so Gnostics portrayed Mary Magdalene as the most advanced disciple of Jesus. And in some instances, also as his partner. So this is Gospel of Mary Magdalene. But also in Nag Hammadi, when I mentioned Gospel of Philip or Pistis Sophia. So there's an interesting story behind Nag Hammadi there because... It was discovered in 1945, and this is the story that I shared only with one more podcaster, and I discussed also with Miguel Conner, who actually 
pointed me towards this one particular scholarly work. And in my book, I mentioned it only in, in one sentence yes. because I didn't know how to react to it. <laughs> but actually, the scrolls in Nakhamadi were found next to a skeleton, strangely looking skeleton with elongated fingers and teeth. So I think that maybe your audience would be interested in it, you know, because... Yes, of course. <laughs> there is a kind of otherworldly element to it, you know, strangely looking skeleton who had this jar next to him. Yeah, very strange. And I definitely had that on the list of things to ask you about. It's crazy because elongated skull, weird teeth, maybe a second row of teeth or elongated teeth. These are the qualities that people tend to peg to what they say is the Nephilim. People think like the Nephilim lived and they were giants and that these elongated skulls that they find, the Paracas skulls in Central America, that they are the remnants of this. But Either way, these Nagamati scriptures, like basically the bulk, or is it, is it all we know about Gnosticism? Well, it's not necessarily all that we know about Gnosticism, but it is, you know, that we had like 40 scrolls discovered there. So Mary Magda, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene discovered about 50, if I'm correct, 50 or 55 years earlier. So this is the main source of this, but we know about Gnostics Okay, so this is actually an excellent question. This is for the first time that we got the original writings because we knew about Gnostics from second century and on mm. when people who were trying to form the institutionalized religion, the new institutional religion, Christianity like Irenaeus and so on between second and fourth century were writing about the Gnostics, but in a very derogatory way. These terrible people that, you know, don't want to follow the church, that they don't want to create the church, that they think that they can, you know, find gnosis or connection with God, you know, by themselves. And some of them use sexual rituals for this, that ordain women, you know, <laughs> worst thing of all. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, so we knew about Gnostics, but always from this negative side. What people who were anti-Gnostic were telling about Gnostics. And Nag Hammadi, for the first time, we had the actual documents written by the Gnostics. Right. Okay, that makes sense. First time we had the, the first-hand writings. And they were found next to this weird Nephilim-like alien skeleton. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know what to make out of this. That's why I just left it in one sentence. You know, maybe it's another book. I don't know. Or maybe <laughs> someone else will pick up on this. But it is kind of interesting because... It gives you a completely different perspective, you know, on what was going on with early Christianity. But one more thing that perhaps I would like to discuss, if you don't mind, which I think is my original research, is what happened to Mary Magdalene after the crucifixion. Would you mind if I cover this? No, go for it. Okay. So, because there is such a long-standing tradition, especially nowadays, with Mary Magdalene going to southern France, after the crucifixion, and it is historically possible because I checked this. However, you know, even there, it is mentioned that Mary Magdalene didn't go to France until 15 years after the crucifixion. And it didn't make any sense simply because, you know, they were all persecuted, so all disciples moved around and left the Holy Land. So I was asking myself, first of all, I'm not totally convinced about the French tradition, although, you know, it is a strong tradition. Then I thought, even if it is true, you know, what did she do for the next 15 years? You know, she certainly didn't stay in Jerusalem or, you know, in 
anyway in the Holy Land because it was not safe for them. So it was a kind of uh, interesting spiritual detective work because I came across a work of another scholar, John E. Taylor, who was talking about Philo of Alexandria and his work, a first century philosopher in Alexandria. His work, Vita Contemplativa. And there she mentioned, which caught my attention, that he mentions a group of philosophers in Alexandria called Therapete, who were inviting spiritually and prophetically and intellectually advanced women, which was very unusual, right? Because women were not allowed to have this kind of activities. Not only this, they had a connection both with the Temple of Isis in Egypt, in Alexandria, but also with some Gnostic groups, especially the Essenes in the Holy Land. So I thought this is very interesting because there are some scholars that argue that Jesus was connected to the Essenes. So I thought, okay, if I were Mary Magdalene, I probably, you know, and if I, Gnostic Mary Magdalene, and this is what I believe, that she was an advanced disciple of Jesus, then I would be much more interested in going to Alexandria, which was the intellectual center and spiritual center of the universe at the time, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Than going to France. And especially that there was a group called Therapete who was inviting women that were spiritually gifted and intellectually gifted. And they had a connection with the Temple of Isis as well. And in my book, as you know, I make a connection between Mary Magdalene and Isis. So would it be possible that she went to Alexandria? So I started to search whether there was a woman who would fit the description of Mary Magdalene at least a little bit at the time in Alexandria. And I found that there was a historical figure called Mary the Alchemist who specialized in spiritual alchemy, which specializes in ascension, not in turning, you know, based metals into gold, but ascension. She was also called Mary the Prophetess which would fit into the Gnostic description of Mary Magdalene, or Mary the Jewess, which would also, you know, apply to Mary Magdalene. And in the third century, famous, which is a historical figure, famous alchemist Zosimus from Akmin said that one of his biggest predecessors was this woman, Mary the Prophetess, Mary the Jewess, Mary the Alchemist. And the reason why she was allowed to open a school in Alexandria it is because she was not fully Egyptian. She was only partly Egyptian or Jewish, which means because Egyptians were not allowed to share their knowledge publicly with the foreigners. Hmm. And then I checked in the open sources of National Library of Israel, and it states there that definitely this figure, Mary the Prophetess, existed and did live in ancient Alexandria, and they even had some kind of physical artifacts, you know, from her alchemical studio, as we would say today, right? <laughs> and then I thought that perhaps another interesting aspect of this is that Zosimus, who wrote about her, lived in Akmin, and the Gospel of Mary Magdalene was also found in Akmin in Egypt. So that perhaps there was already a tradition of her teachings there. So that's the story that I would like to put forward in my book as well. Yes, that's really interesting about her going to Alexandria. And before I really let you go, I did want to ask you about this, because I heard you mention in a previous interview that you said, obviously, men have sexuality too, but they have not been taught how to honor or uplift it. And since this has been so 
feminine centric. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. If we're often taught it's about conquest or, you know, that's just kind of the, the male perspective is often that it is about some kind of conquest. How do we take these themes and recontextualize sexuality for men in a healthier way, in your opinion? That's a very interesting question, Greg. Thank you for this. So, yes, I also say that men were not, were given more sexual freedom, but they were not taught how to honor their sexuality. None of us were, right? None of us were. So I think we already have a wound there because we think it's something horrible or we want to use other people. I think in case of, especially this kind of primal man, you know, to use women for their sexuality and so on. But I think that what we really need to do, both women and men, we really need to, that's why I'm going back to the feminine, it is that we need a woman that feels empowered in a healthy way sexually, because that's only then we can have a, you know, good relationship with each other. Otherwise, we have this kind of either unsure or dependent or toxic feminine, and it's very difficult to have. So I'm asking also women to take responsibility for this, right? We cannot have a clear relationship with this. And also, that's why I encourage people, you know, to discover this erotic connection. And at the beginning of my book, perhaps you remember, I'm talking about this four few traps. One trap is, for example, the romantic trap, right? which means that because we don't have an evolved feminine, you know, and the man that is usually thinking about conquest and this kind of alpha man and so on, we fall into this romantic trap. What is a romantic trap? Which means that we play all of this kind of ancient roles that were already outdated, that we are not showing our true faces to each other because we really don't know who we are, right? So we men play the part of a seductress and, you know, and, and men play the part of a conquering man. And I, I say that this, in this situation, Eros dies because there is no truth into this relationship. We just try to show the best sides of ourselves, but we truly not expose our souls to ourselves. So I often say that, you know, a woman can wear a red dress for the same man only that many times to the same effect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? Eventually, you know, this is being exposed as unreal for both women and men. So I still believe that we need to be complete in our relationships. However, not only in marriages, but in any relationship. And this is when I talk about erotic connection as different from marriage or romance. We have to be really honest with each other, you know. But before we can be honest, show good and bad and ugly and beautiful to each other, allow ourselves to be vulnerable, have an open communication. And before this relationship can have any meaning. But to do this, very often we have to go, in my opinion, on a personal quest. Instead of marrying at 18, and this is what they tell us to do, you know, and in my books, as you know, I said, that would mean death for me. You know, I realize as a young girl, if I marry before I know who I am, we should go more on a personal quest. You know, it was required in all kinds of indigenous societies that everybody goes, men were allowed, women were not allowed, you know, but now women are allowed. And I went on a personal quest to discover at least partially who we are before we enter in, into any meaningful relationship. Mm -hmm. 
Yes. You know, and then to be honest with each other, this is who I am. I am not just a provider for a man, right? I don't know if I want to be a father. And if I want to be a father, I don't know if I want to be a father now. I want to have a meaningful relationship with someone that is not only sexual, and it is wonderful, right, to have a great sex with someone, but it's meaningful erotically, which means I really think like I open up to myself and to you. And we want to talk about our sexual and other needs together. Are we on the same page with certain things? And if we are not, are we in agreement that we want to grow together to a certain point and then separate? So I think there is so much to discover in female and male relationships that are outside of the current parameters of what marriage is. Having said so, like you, I'm also, you know, in a very happy relationship, long-term relationship. But in my case, I got into this relationship later in life. And I know that personally, I'm not saying it's the case for everyone. And so is my partner who had many relationships before me. That in my case, at least, I would not be able to be in this relationship unless I discovered who I was, also sexually, erotically, intellectually, and spiritually. Mm-hmm. And perhaps to admit to ourselves that not to use other people, but be honest with other people. And if we are all honest with each other, that not every relationship has to end in marriage. Yes. <laughs> some of them, if we allow ourselves on both sides without using anyone, you know, just that's um, just a learning lesson for me. But, you know, we are learning. We are just on this amazing adventure on this strange place called planet Earth. And, you know, this is a journey and we are just partners on this journey and let's see where it leads us. But I don't think many people are ready for this kind of openness and learning. (laughs) I agree. Amen to that. And, you know, just men are conditioned to think that we're supposed to drive the sexual experience, lead the dance, so to Mm. speak. But Mm. this has been Mm. a really eye-opening flip on that script that a woman in the right conditions can actually provide an intense, life-changing, enlightenment breakthrough experience, and a peek behind the veil is a true gift. And that's just really interesting that we've gone so long without really ever unpacking this sort of thing. So I just think the work you've done is really amazing. And we covered a lot of great stuff, went far outside what I might have expected, but that is how you know it was a good interview. Your book is super interesting. We didn't even talk about the Merovingian bloodline or the Knights Templar, both which make an appearance, but we got to leave something for the readers. Anything else to tell the people in terms of following your work or your website or links or anything you're working on next? Sure. I think that, you know, the best way to connect with me is actually from my book, The Other Goddess, because I really spilled my, you know, my soul and my body there, you know, (laughs) right in the open. And I think there is some truth in this kind of, uh, you know, raw experiences backed also by research. And I also have a Facebook page, Dr. Joanna Kuyava, and I have a small uh, YouTube channel where I try to post, you know, uh, twice a month few things, although I do not consider myself really a podcaster, you know, the way you are or Miguel is because I consider myself more of a spiritual detective. That's why, you know, the book, The Other Goddess is probably the best way to connect with me. And also my Facebook, where I try to, you know, communicate very meaningfully with people who are there, you know, on on these topics. So I also would like to say that I truly believe that all of these experiences that we spoke about are actually for our benefit And it is up to us, you know, how we are going to respond to these things that we experience. 
including our sexuality, and that we should not allow anyone to interpret these experiences for us, even people closest to us, especially not religious institutions or political institutions. Mm, totally agree. Well said. Ah, oh, this has been super interesting. A great unexpected topic to throw into the lineup. Thanks for doing it. Keep up the great work and take care out there. Thank you so much, Greg. Wow. Well, I'm sure that was pretty unexpected. It's been a bit heavy on current events lately. But is it bad to say that I liked this one more than I thought I might when I was considering it? Sure, a sex magic episode does happen from time to time. But even Alan Greenfield, it's his work on The Secret Cipher of the Euphonauts that I liked so much. But then I didn't want to say no when The Grail Within came out. But it really wasn't my favorite episode. So then when Dr. Kuyava got in touch and said, hey, I heard that show of yours and I offer a different take, not only a feminine take, but one that's not so dark, I was a little on the fence, to be honest, but I thought, you know what, we should offer the counterpoint and just see what happens. Maybe I can do a better sex magic show. I knew she did great interviews on Aeon Byte and Skeptico, so I figured let's go for it. We do have a great deal of female listeners that I think feel a little underrepresented, and I thought I would do it for them, and ended up thinking, man, it is pretty damn interesting for everyone. I do hope people who see the title and think, eh, maybe I'll skip this one, do actually give it a chance, because not only did we go to some wild places, but the main takeaway is her kundalini experience. And it makes me think maybe that really is the core of the suppression of female sexuality because it can facilitate this sort of experience. I'm sure, of course, the suppression is multifaceted, but this would definitely be in the mix. It's also pretty rare to hear anybody talk about, right? Sure, you might hear some Kama Sutra-esque type conversations about what's possible in increasing the levels of pleasure, but I don't think I've ever heard anyone really talk about this. And some say Christianity did come out of a mushroom fertility cult. We've talked before about how the sacrament probably was once something a little stronger than cheap wine and crackers, as well as how cathedrals themselves seem designed geometrically to elevate consciousness. You throw a pipe organ in there and we're all blasting off. <laughs> But as we know, there was a puritanical takeover, and all the fun stuff got stuffed back in the box. No pun intended. So really, that would have been enough for me, but then we got into a weird skeleton buried along the Nag Hammadi texts, the work of Diana Posolka, the similarities between angels and aliens. Things I totally didn't expect, but certainly appreciate. She was a great guest. I like the term wombs of forgotten stargates. Of course, wombs are literal stargates, if you need a refresher on how babies are made. But that is just a great way to phrase it. Stargates in more than one way, I suppose. Oh, and she was thoughtful enough to send me a follow-up email about that last question I asked of how men could use their sexuality and masculinity more productively, or just how to look at masculinity with this new context for femininity. And she wrote, you asked me about what this means for men, which was an excellent question. I would say that Eros is not about performance and that both men and women are limited in this oppressive trap of one form of masculinity. 
I would say that for the erotic connection, men should not be afraid to show their vulnerability, something that is too often considered as weakness, when in fact it is a strength, and men should not be afraid of opening emotionally and spiritually in an erotic encounter. Masculinity, just as much as femininity, has many faces. Also, of course, this also goes for women. Do not fall into the polarity trap of an attractive other woman slash harlot and the wife slash mother archetype, as they are both very damaging to our psyche. Since I did not fully answer the question, I thought at least I would share this reflection with you via email. I hope this is helpful to you in some ways. Well, yeah, definitely. We are oftentimes pushed into polarities or ways of looking at things that don't suit us and the angles that might are not so often talked about. And I appreciate her response. She clearly cares about the material and was thoughtful enough to add that bit after the fact. Very fun person to talk to. As for the Plus Show, it of course was very wild. It is where some of the things I mentioned came up, but just to give you the full gist, we got into... Egyptian sex magic, Atenaten and Nefertiti, goddess symbols and the goddess's magical tools, ideas gleaned from Dr. Jeff Kripal and Dr. Diana Pasolka, angel encounters and abductee experience overlap, alien abduction and human sexuality, the three possibilities as to who the goddesses were, which of course she did ask for some listeners to voice their opinion of which of those three options they think is most likely. We talked about Dr. Kuyava's own personal paranormal visitations, goddesses and archetypes, and medicating spiritual sensitivity. As we know, modern society has a pill for everything. So if you liked this one, if you are intrigued to hear the full show, you know you have that seven-day free trial, and I certainly pay attention to what interests most people, and I try to follow up on those threads. But it's pretty clear the church and the state both want to keep us from true enlightenment experiences and direct knowledge. Not only all the things that I mentioned seem to have been ripped out of the spiritual traditions, but of course, psychedelics, even in modern context. Sure, you guys can smoke a little weed, you know, but that's where we're going to draw the line. They know that if you see through the facade, you lose your fear of death. You are less manipulatable. And all this game they're running on us just isn't as effective. I even heard recently while preparing for a totally different episode, somebody said that their kundalini experience was akin to walking through the gardens of Acacia. As if you can access the Akashic record this way, and we know that is something that nobody in power would want for little old us. So I certainly learned a lot, and this will color the way I think about sexual suppression and the divine feminine for probably the rest of my life. So it definitely has a lot of value. Just goes to show you can explore pretty much every strange topic under the sun for over a decade and still learn more all the time. Big thanks to her for her work and for spreading the word about her profound experience when many others might be inclined to keep it private, especially with the academic career and play. But in higher side news, we definitely got some good stuff in the works. A bit of a back and forth between useful, important, relevant coverage of the times and then just some weird, crazy stuff that I think we all like. So be awake, be ready. <laughs> and let's look at the meetups calendar, HiresideMeetups.com. Our next three events remain the same. Tonight, Monday, August 22nd, sunset by the vast conspiracy in Venice Beach. 
Saturday, August 27th, the London UK THC meetup at Little Creatures Brewing in King's Cross. Get at it. And then Saturday, September 3rd, the Conspiracy Theorizers at High Springs Brewing in High Springs, Florida. And yes, alcohol might not be the most enlightening substance, but it is a social lubricant. It has its place, and there's just something about supporting microbreweries and small breweries all across this great nation that I appreciate. It charges me up a bit. Although there are many ways to meet up, and you could go on hikes, you could go to oddity shops, you could go to museums, you could stargaze, all kinds of stuff. So let your creativity be the only limiting factor. New friends in your area are just a few quick clicks of the mouse away, but you know the drill. But thanks for sticking with me. Thanks for supporting the show. For the plus members who do, I hope you feel like it's worth your eight bucks a month. I love you guys. Couldn't do it without you. Curious what the feedback will be for this one, but we shall see. Let Dr. Kuyava know you liked the conversation. If you did, I'm sure she would appreciate it. She is on Twitter at Joanna Author, for those of you who use Twitter. But that's it for me. I'll catch you next time. I've done my part. Your move, goddess suppressors, kundalini deniers, and divine feminine demonizers. Your fucking Woke up this morning with light in my eyes And then realized it was dark outside It was a light coming down from the sky I don't know who Must be those strangers that come every night Whose saucer-shaped light put people up tight Leave blue-green footprints that glow in the dark I hope they get home you please take me along I won't do anything wrong hey Mr. Spaceman won't you please take me along the high side woke up this morning I was feeling quite weird Flies in my beard, my toothpaste was smeared. I opened my window, they written my name. Said, So long, we'll see you again. Hey, Mr. Spaceman, won't you please?
And that is another show complete. Remember, as much as you enjoyed this, which is just the free first hour, I hope you'll become a Plus member to hear the full two-hour interviews. You also can engage with other Plus members in the comments and the forums, and you'll find your answer to one of the most common questions I get, which is where can I find those cover songs that you use at the end of the show? Well, they are free downloads for Plus members too. And without Plus members, I can't hire the occasional musician to bring these odd cover song ideas to fruition. Plus members are how I'm able to do what I do without ads and without the big machine being on my back. We can fit so much more into a two-hour interview, and I do my best to make it worth your time and money. The conversation only gets deeper, weirder, and more controversial in that private hour. How could it not the way things are going? But the best way to sign up is at thehiresidechats.com, where new first-time subscribers always get a free seven-day trial because I'm just that confident. There's no PayPal on the website, but if you need to use PayPal, then sign up through Patreon and you get all the same episodes. Our website is a credit or debit system, but you can also scope out the other options like a few various cryptos, cash or check mailed to the P.O. Box, and I'll even barter with most people if you have your own business and produce something nice that my wife or kid or taste buds might like. But the architects of consensus reality have made it clear that these themes and topics aren't really welcome on the main stage. And so this is how we secure a little counterculture corner for ourselves, and I hope you'll join Plus because that is the only way it works. Besides, you can cancel anytime right on your profile page. The most common concern I hear is people just being unsure if THC Plus will work with their podcast app, and the answer is probably yes. But if not, we have several high-level app recommendations for whatever phone you use, and the website is made for mobile too. We're trained to tip a waitress for bringing us a sandwich, but that tip doesn't give you access to a second sandwich. Really, I'm not asking for any more than that, and I think I offer a better service. Come get your second serving of tasty conspiracy goodness in exchange for that small token of your appreciation. Beyond that, let it also be known that we have grown and survived as long as we have by word of mouth. I don't care so much about social media likes or follows, but tell the right people about THC. And not just listeners, but the high-level figures who are better suited to sit down with me than most other hosts. And if you can help me with any of these things, I can work to bring you better shows, which is just a win-win for both of us. Informative, entertaining, and action-packed. It also never hurts to thank a guest you liked if you have the time either. We want them to know people are listening, so they're willing to come back down the road too. Thank you for spending some time with me and cheers to a better tomorrow.